Children, when I was a little boy, um, and I, have, I don't have a whole lot of memory of this, but I, I do remember one particular incident. When I was a little boy, and I, I, I think I was probably three or four. Most of you children are, well, some of you children are that age, some of you are older than that. But um, I learned how to swim in deep water at one point when I was a little boy. And I, like I said, I was around three or four, I think. And before that time, I had I would only walk in water and kind of be in water where I could stand on the bottom. Well, there came a point in time when I had to learn to swim in deeper water. And as I recall, I was with my dad, and dad was pulling me out into deeper water where I couldn't touch the bottom anymore. And I might have had a floaty on, I can't remember. Um... But at any rate, he was pulling me out, and he had already told me what I needed to do to swim. And he said, "Now I'll, I'll, I'll get you if you, if you, if something goes wrong and you start to sink. I'll, I'll get you. You just, just trust me. I'll get you." And he let go. And I don't remember exactly if I how long I was able to kind of stay afloat. I think I was doing the doggy paddle. And, uh, but I didn't, I got scared. And, uh, I think I yelled, Daddy, you know, and he, he grabbed me and said, It's okay, it's okay, I got you, I got you. I had to trust my dad, kids. Maybe you had that experience yourself or something like that with your dad or your mom. I had to trust my dad. He told me to trust him. And, um, I knew I could trust him, but it was kind of a, it was a, it was scary. It was scary for me because you went into deep water and you can't touch. And the first time you do that, it's kind of scary. But um, but he was there for me, and I knew I could trust him. And when I called out to him, when I got scared, he grabbed me, and everything was okay. I think I gave him a big bear hug, as I recall. I kind of wrapped myself around him, kind of like a monkey, around his. Uh, his arms and his, his neck. Uh, but he got me. And he took care of me. I'm here today. I didn't drown. Because dad was trustworthy. Right? And your dads are trustworthy. And your moms are trustworthy too. I'm not just talking about dads here. Um, but we have to sometimes trust in scary situations um, other people, like our parents, and really what this text is making the point, uh, is making a point that we need to particularly trust God in situations that are troublesome or scary for us. And the king that we are looking at today, King Asa, he was basically a pretty good king. Uh, especially early on in his reign and most of his reign, he was a pretty faithful king who trusted God. But he kind of lost sight of what he was, his need to trust God at one point near the end of his reign. And he didn't trust God. A couple of times he didn't trust God. And God indicated to him that that was evil, what he did. And it's evil when we don't trust God. We do it. Evil is another word for sin, by the way. Um, But we are supposed to trust God even when it's hard to do that or scary to do that. You need to do that. You adults need to do that. I need to do that. And this text is making that point. 
this. So listen, there are two different things that happened to Asa that he did wrong. And we're going to look at them here in the next few minutes. So, little reminder of the background here. Um, First and Second Chronicles were written by one individual, uh, almost certainly a man. Um, and uh, he's the author, and the Chronicles were originally, First and Second Chronicles were originally one book, so I often refer to First and Second Chronicles as just the Chronicles, and most of you are aware of that by this point in time. But the Chronicles present, among other things, present summaries of the reigns of each of the royal descendants of King David who ruled over the southern kingdom of Judah. And we've been going through those kings, and we still have a number of the kings to go yet, but, but uh, we've, worked, we've started working our way through uh, Solomon and Rehoboam and Abijam, uh, Abijah, and um, yeah, now we're at Asa. Um, and at some point during each of these summaries of the reigns of these uh, Davidic sons or descendants, the chronicler and the Holy Spirit who inspired him provides a spiritual appraisal of the king whose reign is in view uh, at any particular point in the in the account. Some of these evaluations are wholly negative. Zedekiah, the last of Israel's kings. Nothing good is said about Zedekiah by, uh, by God or the chronicler. Uh, others are nothing but positive. Josiah. He is this kind of a glowing re- assessment given to him by the chronicler and the Holy Spirit. But then there are others... Uh, a few others, where the assessment that is given depends upon which portion of the king's reign is under consideration at, at, at that point in time. Because, in these few cases where this happens, the king is faithful during one portion of his uh, tenure as the king, but is not so faithful in another portion. And that is Asa's situation. Uh, much of his reign, he was faithful. He reigned for 40 years over Judah, um, which we learned from chapter 16, verse uh, 13. I think I read it here a little while ago. Yeah. Um, But it is clear when you read the whole portion of 2 Chronicles, which is devoted to Asa's reign, which is verses uh, chapters 14 through 16, that the chroniclers, and yes, the Lord's, assessment of Asa recorded back in 14.2, that Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. That assessment of Asa uh, only applied to about the first 35 years, maybe 36 or 7, but at least the first 35 years of his reign. That assessment didn't apply to the entirety of his reign. Because, sadly, Asa did not remain fully faithful to the Lord in the last couple years of his rule, last few years of his rule, and he incurred God's discipline, and his nation did as well, as a result of his spiritual waywardness and his unbelief. And today's passage that we're looking at here reports on this, I'll call it rather shameful, latter portion uh, of Asa's reign over Judah. Two points that we're going to look at. First, Asa's failure to trust the Lord for victory over his enemies. And I mean enemies, plural, not singular. You might go, isn't it singular? No, actually, plural. We'll get to that a little bit later in the point. But so Asa's failure to trust the Lord for victory over his enemies is the first uh, thing that's uh, dealt with in this passage. And the second, and this is found in verses, uh, the second point is uh, 11 through 12, 
is Asa's failure to trust the Lord for healing from his disease. So first, Asa's failure to trust the Lord for victory over his enemies, verses 1 through 10. And secondly, Asa's failure to trust the Lord for healing from his disease, verses 11 and 12. Or actually 11 through 14, but uh, really 12 makes that point. So first, Asa fails to trust the Lord for victory over enemies. The narrative begins uh, in chapter 16 with a description of how Asa reacts to an attack uh, on his realm that is initiated by uh, the northern kingdom and her king, whose name was Baasha. The northern kingdom is Israel. Baasha is the arguably the illegitimate ruler of the northern kingdom because the Davidic king, who was Asa, is supposed to rule over all 12 tribes. That, of course, is no longer the case. But the uh, northern tribes is arguably uh, the northern ten tribes in Israel are arguably in rebellion against their legitimate ruler, who is the Davidic king, uh, who whose uh, uh, palace is in Jerusalem. In this case, Asa. But the north attacks. Baasha decides to attack his southern neighbor, the kingdom of Judah. And we read of that in verse one. I'm not going to reread it right now. But in response, what happens is Judah's king Asa decides to enlist the help of Ben-Hadad, the king of Aaron, who, uh, whose palace was in Damascus. And he enlists, Asa enlists his help in an effort to rid uh, Asa's king, uh, Asa's realm, rather, of this threat that he now faces from Israel, from Baasha's armies uh, of Israel. And so he he asked for help from Baasha. Excuse me, not Baasha, excuse me, Ben-Hadad. I'll read those verses, verses 2 and 3. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, with these gifts, accompanied by these gifts, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. That was the goal. That's his desire and his need and uh, his intention of buying uh, uh, Ben-Hadad's temporary assistance, shall we say. Well, uh, 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 Ben-Hadad agrees to help Asa, and he does so by launching an attack on Israel's flank with his own Aramean forces to distract and draw away the forces that were uh, beating on Judah's door. Um, and so, that's what happens. Ben-Hadad's forces attack Israel, the, king, the northern kingdom, and what happens is that forces Baasha to suspend his military campaign uh, as planned uh, against Judah so that he, uh, Baasha, can devote his attention and resources to, to defending his own kingdom against this foreigner, uh, Ben-Hadad from uh, Damascus. Now, to the unsuspecting reader of this, this series of events that I've just described appears to be a pretty obvious victory for Asa. After all, his plot to get Baasha off his back worked. No longer under attack. No longer under threat. Because the forces of Israel are busy trying to fend off the Arameans. 
And not only does Baasha no longer represent a threat to Asa, but another reason why it appears to be a victory for him is because Asa has actually actually was able to strengthen his own border defenses near the Israelite border using stones and timbers that Baasha had previously used to fortify his own defenses in, in Ramah. And they run away and leave all their supplies and timbers and stones and stuff. And the, the Judahites say, you know, we're going to take those and we're going to use them to fortify our border. And they do. Looks like a quite the quite the um, victory for Asa. Things are really looking up, right? For Asa? Not so much. Not so much. While it is true that the discontinuation of Baasha's attacks on Judah on account of his own need to fend off Ben-Hadad's attack, while that could indeed be characterized as a victory for Asa and his realm, neither the chronicler nor the Holy Spirit who inspires him, view this outcome as a victory for Asa. Why not? The reason is given for us in verses 7 through 9. Let's read. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram, and not relied on the Lord your God, Therefore, the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Where were the Ethiopians and the Lubim? No, were, excuse me, were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Wait a minute, I misread that. Where are we here? Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, meaning back then, he, the Lord, delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. You see, Asa responds to this attack from the northern kingdom of Israel. His response, calling on Ben-Hadad and his help constituted a serious breach of covenant fidelity to God in God's eyes by Asa. Hanani um, is the seer. A seer is just another term used in the Old Testament to describe a prophet of the Lord. 1 Samuel, 7, uh, 1 Samuel 9, 9 confirms that point if, you wanna, if you're curious. They're identical in terms of meaning. Um, and Hanani comes... And he's the spokesman for the Almighty, and the Almighty speaks through him and says what I just read to you. And instead of congratulating Asa on his clever diplomacy, and indeed it was clever and successful, Hanani, and the Lord speaking through him, lays into the king. I just read it. For the way that he handled this challenge from and this threat from the northern kingdom and its king. Rather than putting his trust in the Lord in the midst of this crisis, which is what he should have done, he decides to trust in the king of Aaron, Aram instead. And this was a serious breach of his covenant duty. 
particularly as the Davidic ruler, the successor to David, ruling over the Old Testament church, which is what Israel was. It was a breach of duty and covenant duty at that. Psalm 40. 146 makes this point. I'll read that in one other verse. Psalm 146, verses 3 through 6, reads as follows. Do not trust in princes. There it is. Do not trust in princes, in mortal men, in whom there is no salvation. That word can be also translated deliverance. His spirit, meaning mortal man, his spirit departs, and he returns to the earth in the very day his thoughts perish. That's what happens to us when we die. Our thoughts perish. Now, we, our spirit goes to glory and you know, all is well, but point is, life is fleeting for mortal men. And then he says in verse 5, How blessed is he who, whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, or faithfulness forever. That can be translated also. Another verse that makes a similar point um, uh, is Isaiah 31.1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Once again, who turn to a prince of another land. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. You could insert Aram there, rather than Egypt. Right? Asa didn't do this. Asa looked to mortal men. And his unwillingness to rely upon the Lord for help in his kingdom's time of need, it elicits two responses from the Almighty, from the Lord. First, it earns him a stern rebuke from the Lord through the mouth of his spokesman, Hanani. Uh, Hanani first reminds Asa of the miraculous victory uh, that the Lord had given him in the past when he put his trust in the Lord. That was what we read there in verse 8 about uh, the um, uh, the Ethiopians in the Lubim. Were not the Ethiopians in the Lubim an immense army? Uh, remember, Zerah was the one who was leading those forces. Million-man force was coming against uh, Judah's southern uh, border. And, and what happened? He trusted God. He cried out to God. And the Lord provided. The Lord uh, destroyed his enemies. And so Hanani reminds uh, Asa, you did this once the right way. And God responded with faithfulness to you. And then, he renders a verdict concerning Asa's behavior. After saying, the Lord's looking for people whose heart is completely his. Yours right now is not, is what the Lord is saying. Through Hanani the prophet, the seer. And what's the verdict? The verdict is, you have acted foolishly. In this, the this there is the choice that Asa made to put his trust in the king of Aram rather than in the Lord. You've acted foolishly. So that's the first thing he does. He rebukes him. The second thing the Lord does as he speaks through the prophet is in response to Asa's display of unfaithfulness is 
He exacts discipline on him and on his kingdom. As a result of his failure to trust the Lord, he will forfeit and does, in fact, forfeit the opportunity that God would have otherwise given him to not only defeat Baasha's Israelite forces, but also to defeat who is really his enemy, ultimately, Ben-Hadad and his Aramean forces. You read in verse, you read this in verse 7. The, um, uh, uh, because you have relied on the king of Aram, uh, and have not relied upon the Lord your God. Therefore, the army, and you'd expect to read here, the king, uh, the army of the king of Israel has escaped out of your hand. It doesn't. It says Aram. Ben Hadad was actually Asa's enemy, ultimately. And the Lord would have not only allowed him to push back against, successfully against the, uh, Baasha's forces, but it would have also given him conquest over Ben Hadad and his Aramean forces if he had trusted in the Lord. But he didn't. You forfeited that, is what the Lord is saying there uh, to him. And not only did he forfeit uh, the opportunity to defeat uh, Ben-Hadad, but he we also read this very sad uh, uh, final word in the, in the word from Hanani in verse 9, after he says, For the Lord... For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly foolishly in this. And then he says, indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. No more peace for you. No more peace for your kingdom. You're going to have wars for the remainder of your time as king. Which wasn't very long. It was the last uh, two or three, four years of his reign. But he's like, you're going to have a peaceless remainder of your of your tenure as king. Discipline from the Lord. The application is pretty obvious, isn't it? God expects you and me, all of us who are his children, to deliberately, deliberately put our trust in him when we are facing trials of whatever sort they might be. Be it health issues, be it financial issues, be it um, whatever uh, relational relationship issues, uh, fear issues, mental health issues, whatever it might be. The Lord expects us to uh, trust in Him. If we need wisdom in how to deal with somebody in our life that's, uh, shall we say, challenging, you are to trust the Lord and not your own human wisdom, even though you may have plenty of that. If you are fearful about how some situation is going to turn out in your life, you don't know the outcome, the future, and you're worried about how what might actually uh, uh, result from this situation, you're scared of the outcome, you need to trust the Lord with it. If you don't know how, maybe perhaps you don't know how you're going to bear up under some agonizing grief that you're facing or will face in the future. How am I going to bear this? I don't think I can bear this. Oh, yes, you can with God's help, if you trust him. If your faith is sorely shaken for some reason, because of some events in your life or whatever, um, you need to trust the Lord with what little faith you have. you got to trust the Lord, folks. It's not an option for the Christian. It's just not. 
And sometimes it's really difficult to do, isn't it? Sometimes it's really difficult. I don't have the gift of faith. Uh, Most of you probably already know that. Some people just... Judy Wick, for those of you that knew Judy Wick, she had the gift of faith. Most of you don't know her, didn't have the pleasure of knowing her. She was a wonderful, wonderful woman who was uh, one of the founding members of this church. But she had the gift of faith. I do not. Faith came easy to Judy. Not to me. I don't think it probably comes real easy to most of us. But we're required to do it. With whatever we've got. Mustard seed or boulder. We are required to do that, and this text calls us to it. Well, King Asa's response, how do you respond to the Lord's rebuke of him and discipline of him through his servant Hanani? It wasn't good. He sins further against the Lord. Verse 10 records this. He sins further against the Lord, first of all, by becoming enraged at the prophet, at the seer. So enraged, in fact, that he throws him in prison. He shoots the messenger. And then, on top of that, he takes his aggression out on others of his subjects as well. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time that he was oppressing Hanani. He's just shaking his fist at God. Not a very commendable moment in his reign. This sinful reaction by Asa to the prophet's divine message to him on this occasion contrasts sharply with Asa's response to God's word in the earlier years of his reign when the prophet uh, Azariah spoke to him back in chapter 15. You may recall that. Um, That was a very, um, the Lord was basically, uh, uh, there was, uh, things were not going well, and the Lord, through the prophet Azariah, uh, challenged Asa to uh, be strong, verse 17, verse 7 rather, uh, be strong and do not lose courage. In other words, you need to, you need to deal with the troubles in the land, the spiritual troubles in the land, take leadership in this. And what does Asa do? He does it. Verse 8 of chapter 5, 15 rather, he acts on rightly, trusts in the Lord and obeys the Lord and does what he can as the king to, uh, to uh, uh, right the ship of state and church. Not this time. Not over here in chapter 16. And we're supposed to see the contrast and grieve over it on this in this latter case. The moral of the story, of course, um, the fact that in terms of Asa's response to his rebuke and discipline from the Lord, um, when responding to a rebuke from God for some sin which you have committed, with yet more sin is profoundly foolish. And it is invites further discipline from the Lord. When we respond with a rebuke, and by the way, that can be when God convicts you as you're reading your word, and you go, I know I'm disobeying this commandment that I'm reading right here, or this example that I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to follow. I'm not doing that. And you say, I'm still not going to do it. 
I'm not interested. Or, or this sin I'm supposed to flee from. No, I'm not going to flee from it. Even though the Lord is speaking to you through his word and saying, you need to flee from that. Or you need to do this, which you're not doing. Uh, you need to trust me. Or whatever it is, and you, and you bow up, you are sinning further against the Lord, and it is profoundly foolish, though very tempting at times, right? Don't respond to rebuke from the Lord through either his word or through another person in your life who calls you to the carpet, maybe. Don't respond with more sin. Respond with repentance and humility and faith. Asa not only fails to trust the Lord for victory over his enemies, Asa also fails to trust the Lord for healing from his disease. This is found in verses 11 and 12. He speaks of a foot disease there in verse 12. He says, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. This disease was severe. Um, Neither the king's account, because remember the chronicler has kings in front of him, uh, when he's writing, it's, it's very clear that he was relying on the kings, which had been written a couple hundred years earlier, uh, but adds a lot to it and subtracts some things too, interestingly. Uh, but neither the king's account nor the chronicler's account provide any clue as to what the precise nature of this foot disease is. Some have speculated that it was gangrene caused by some sort of vascular obstruction or that it was gout or that it was dropsy, which is the accumulation of lymph in the body tissues and cavities. Did I get that right? Dropsy. Anyway, I just read the word and said, like, what is dropsy? So I've looked it up. Um, lymph. Um, nobody knows, but it was severe, whatever it was, and highly unpleasant. All we know is that this ailment uh, developed in the 39th year of Asa's reign in Judah when he was an old man and nearing the end of his life. So we don't, and it was a foot disease. And it, it is quite clear from the way this is from the way the chronicler handled what he read in Kings uh, when he was writing this, it's quite clear that the chronicler regarded Asa's diseased foot as God's discipline of him for his previous unwillingness to trust the Lord. And what does Asa do with further discipline from the Lord in addition to the wars that he was going to have for the remainder of his life. What does he do? Does he do the right thing? No. He doesn't. He fails once again to look to the Lord for help with his affliction. The last part of uh, chapter 12, uh, not chapter 12, verse 12, his disease was severe, yet even in his disease, notice the even in his disease He did not seek the Lord, but he sought the physicians. Throughout the Chronicles, the author of Chronicles repeatedly writes numerous incidents like this about incidents and events that illustrate through the events that the Chronicler is chronicling uh, the fact that God always comes to the aid of his people when they are in trouble if and when they will seek him for that aid and help. He always faithfully provides and helps helps his people. Always, when they seek him for that help. 
Asa himself had been the beneficiary of just such divine help earlier on in his reign. When he called out to the Lord for help because of the military odds that were stacked against him in his kingdom, when Zerah came after him with that million-man force. Lord provided, as already we already mentioned. But just as he had, fast forward to chapter 16, just as Asa had uh, recently looked to a mere man, albeit a king, to deliver him from the threat of Baasha, the Aramean king, just as he'd done that recently, he now, with a new challenge in his life, a new affliction in his life, he puts his trust in another mere, well actually mere men, to deliver them, deliver him from his disease. He looked to his doctors. Not the Lord. And this choice was just as faithless and foolish as the previously recorded choice that he made was to trust Ben Hadad. Ben Hadad, excuse me. And he made this foolish and sinful choice to not trust the Lord because he forgot something. Which you and I must not forget. He forgot that any and all blessings that men experienced, men, that's uh, gender neutral, that we experience all blessings are ultimately, ultimately from God's hand including healings. Including healing from that headache when you take aspirin, by the way. Or acetaminophen, or whatever you take. Or an herb. Whatever. Because of his unbelieving choice, Asa found no relief from his disease. You're not going to trust me? Get no healing from me. Kind of what the Lord implicitly said to him. You're not going to get any result. Those, those doctors can work on you all day long. It's not going to help. That doesn't mean doctors aren't helpful, but, you know, these guys weren't. As Richard Pratt observes, Asa forgot that effective help comes only from God. Effective help comes only from God. And you and I must not forget this truth. Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121.2 That's our help. Always, that's our help when we need help. It comes from the Lord. By the way, the chronicler and the Holy Spirit speaking through him are not condemning the fact that Asa sought help from physicians. What is being condemned is the fact that he was not putting his ultimate trust in the Lord to grant him relief from his sufferings or the ability to bear up under him, perhaps. But that the Lord, that he was not trusting the Lord, that's what's being rebuked here in the text by the chronicler and, and God himself. Because God almost always uses means to accomplish his holy ends and to answer our cries for help. He almost always uses means rather than throw some miracle at us. That doesn't require, that has no means, where there's no means involved. That happened much more regularly back in this day and age, but even then it didn't happen 
you know, a lot of the time uh, during biblical times, but it doesn't happen much these days. God uses means, but our trust must never be in the means. In the physician, in the the diet, the exercise, the you know, the well-built nature of our car, our ability to drive down the road safely. It must never be in those things. Lord wants us trusting always in Him. Especially in crises. Well, in spite of Asa's failures to trust the Lord toward the end of his reign, these two that we've highlighted today, the Chronicler and the Holy Spirit, judge him to be a good king on the whole. On the whole. His heart wasn't completely the Lord's, all of his reign. That's what verse, 11, uh, verse 9 makes clear. It wasn't completely his. The Lord wants our hearts completely his. But much of the time, his heart was completely the Lord's, as much as a sinner can do that. And how do I know this? Because of what we read in verses 13 and 14. And there we find evidence from that, that, that he was basically a good king on the whole. It's evident from the fact that the, that the, their honor, I'll use, I'm making up an expression here, honor enhancing details that the chronicler adds to what the author of Kings had written about Asa's burial. The author of Kings was very Spartan in his wording that described Asa's, it was just one verse that described that he was buried with his fathers, I think is what he says. Uh, But the chronicler embellishes on the end of Asa's life and his burial in particular, and that is designed to enhance the reader's opinion of Asa. Let me read it. Verse 13. So Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. That's basically what, as I recall, that's what the first king's account says, and that's that's it. But then Asa, excuse me, a chronicler adds, and they buried him in his own tomb, which he had cut out for himself in the city of David, and they laid him in the resting place, which he had filled with spices and various kinds of blended Various kind with spices of various kinds blended by the perfumer's art, and they, meaning the people, made a great funeral pyre for him, a great fire for him. They weren't burning him here; this was just a fire in his honor. But it was a, it was designed. The chronicler and the Holy Spirit want you to see Asa was basically a good king. He really was but he was flawed. He was like you and me. He was flawed. And we have moments in our lives that we aren't or shouldn't be proud of as Christians. When we go afield, when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, or we say something that's cutting in order to get somebody back for something they did for us, or did to us. Or when we uh, shade the truth to uh, improve the way we look in the eyes of somebody else. Or 
can name the whatever sin you come up with. Uh, and sometimes they're, sometimes they're pretty significant. Christians can go pretty far afield. Believers. Asa went pretty far afield. Was, he's in heaven. It's pretty clear. But he messed up royally as an old man. Again, that's a, that's a particular point to be uh, we who are, shall we say, past middle age need to take note. Just because we're mature Christians doesn't mean we're immune from this kind of behavior. Yeah, right. But this is true of any Christian, young, old, you children, it applies to you as well. Even if you're a Christian child, you can tell a bold-faced lie to your mom and dad sometime to stay out of trouble so you don't get spanked or something like that. That's evil. And you're capable of it. You shouldn't do it, but you might. The pressure's on. We need to never, you know, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to take heed. Never think more highly of yourself than you ought. No matter how mature you are in the faith. This is an object lesson for all of us. Beware of the old man and what he's capable of in the Christian's life. Now the Christian gets forgiven for the old man and when he uh, gets the upper hand. Because the Christian is looking to Jesus alone to save him from his or her sins and to make, to reconcile him to God. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you and uh, trusting in him as your savior from hell, which you deserve, we all deserve, and also to be the Lord of your life because he is Lord of all those whom he saves. If you're not trusting in him alone to make you right with God, you're on the road to hell right now. You might say to yourself, well, no, no, that's not true. I'm going to church. I put, I put a lot of money in the collection plate just a little while ago. I'm a Boy Scout or an Eagle Scout. I was a Boy Scout. You know, or I, I'm, I'm, I pay my taxes down to this red cent that I owe. I never cheat on my taxes. Or I help old ladies across the street when I'm downtown at the coffee shop. Or whatever. If you think any of that is going to help you get, in, get you into heaven, you are utterly deceived. God is not impressed with your attempts, your paltry attempts at being good. Because God doesn't see the goodness in those efforts because all he sees is the blackness of your heart because you're unforgiven by him. And your heart, like mine, we are conceived with spiritual blackness. It is sin. It is the sin nature that we have as fallen, uh, as fallen human beings. And that's all God can see until you get forgiven by Jesus. And you've got to flee to Jesus alone to get that forgiveness and to, to get reconciled to God whom you have so sorely offended by your sin. You have to trust Jesus alone. The Jesus who is 100% God, 100% man, and the only way to avoid going to hell. 
and to be forgiven by God. Do you have that, Jesus? Are you trusting in him alone? Do so now, if you haven't before now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.